Whenever you have a need, you want to meet it. You are very concerned about your own welfare, your own comfort, safety, your interests, your health, your physical, spiritual, temporal and eternal things. We are very concerned about ourselves. We seek our own pleasure and we know of no limits of, to gain what we want. Now, that's exactly the way you are to love everybody else. And Jesus said, even your enemies. Welcome to our next podcast, Loving Your Enemies. We come to Matthew chapter 5, the last um, three, four verses from verse 44 to verse 43 to verse 48. And it deserves our greatest attention, our deepest commitment for perhaps no other passage in all of the New Testament sums up the heart and attitude of a Christian as well as this one. It expresses what I think is the most single powerful testimony that a Christian can have in the simple statement of Jesus in verse 44, love your enemies. As we embark upon this passage from verses 43 to 48, in our continued study on the Sermon on the Mount, we come to a tremendously important part of Scripture. I think that if there is one statement made by Jesus that is that in the eyes of the world sums up <coughs> Christianity, <coughs> what Christianity ought to be like, it's probably love your enemies. Um, Will Durant, a historian and a philosopher, was asked, what he thought of the Christian ethic and he summed up the Christian ethic with the words well basically quote it's love your enemies he said without question Jesus set the highest ethic ever in the history of man but too bad nobody ever lived up to it end quote this is the supreme facet of life if love is the greatest thing then loving your enemies is the greatest thing that love can do. And so, the sunum bonum, that is the highest good, is a sense of all of our kingdom living should be found in this concept of loving our enemies. And I want you to really think with me. We have to lay some groundwork so you'll understand. And then later we hear how Jesus speaks, starting with the Old Testament, moving to the fullness of the New Testament concept of loving your enemies. But we have to begin today with a little background and some foundation. And I wanted to get this because it's absolutely essentially that essential that you understand. In all of the Sermon on the Mount, I think there are two statements that more than any others, and they are very obscure at first, some of the ethics, the standards, the requirements of the one who claims to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. They are very simple statements. The first one I want to point your attention to is in verse 47 of chapter 5. It says this, it says this in the middle of the verse. What do you, what do you more than others? In other words, what does your system have more than any other system? What makes you different? And then in 
verse in chapter 6 verse 8 another simple statement be not ye therefore like unto them the second statement two statements that sum up the whole sermon what do you more than others and don't be like them what jesus is saying in both of these simple statements is this my standards are not like other standards what i require is not what other people do my standard is a higher standard in fact he's indicting the whole pharisaical religious judaistic system as being substandard god requires for his kingdom a different standard unique separate holy in chapter 5 verse 20 he pointed directly to their system and said this i say unto you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven my standard is high he's saying my standard is higher than the highest human standard which is the standard of the scribes and the pharisees they struggled with all kinds of laws all kinds of religious ceremonies and rituals they were the most religious people of their time and yet god says you are no different than anybody else my standard is that you do not act like them that you do more than even the best that men can do the highest human ethic falls woefully short of god's standard that is now this isn't anything new in the new testament god has always called his people to a higher standard this is how god put it to the people of israel soon after he had rescued them from their egyptian slavery and made them this covenant people he said i am the lord your god you shall not do as they do in the land of egypt where you dwelt and you shall not do as they do in the land of canaan to which i am bringing you in other words my standard is not the one you came from <clears throat> and it's not the one you're going to you shall not walk in their statutes you shall do my ordinances and keep my statutes and walk in them i am the lord your god now notice he brackets the statement for by i am the lord your god i am the lord your god beginning and ending with that statement and because i am the lord your god you don't act like anybody else acts and that's hard it's hard for them it's hard in jesus time and it's tough on us today to try to live according to the standard other than the standard that engulfs us and traps us in the world around us it is difficult and that's what god asked for sadly throughout the centuries that followed israel kept forgetting their uniqueness they kept forgetting that theirs was another standard and they kept falling into sin they were in balaam's words a people dwelling alone not reckoning itself among the nations side commentary and that commentary could be labeled on the church just as well they mingled with the heathen learned to do as they did for the very from the very beginning god has always called the people to uniqueness he has all he has always called the people to another standard to a higher level and god's people for some reason are always pulled down in fact it came to be that in israel they desired to have a king and their statement is this we will have a king over us that we may be like the nations they wanted to be like the rest of the world they even went so far as to say let us be like the nations and worship gods of wood and stone 
So God kept sending them prophets. And the prophets kept reminding them about their uniqueness. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, who said, do not defile yourself with the gods of Egypt. And the prophets after and prophet after prophet after prophet came singularly in duos, in trios, and so forth. They came, continuously pleading with God's people to be sure they maintained their unique standards. To fall below was to dishonor God. It's no different in Jesus' time and today. God wants his people to be different. He wants his people to be unique. And the standard that Jesus presents here regarding loving your enemies is not the mood of the mob. <coughs> that kind of a statement to the average pagan today sounds like lunacy. doesn't make any sense. It is not earthly standard. It is not morality. It is not the morality of the age. It is unique. It is a far greater ethic. In fact, if you want to know the truth, it is far greater it is a far greater ethic than either you or I could ever keep on our own. It's way beyond us to love our enemies. But kingdom character, kingdom character is to be absolutely distinct, absolutely unique. And the key to it is that you can't live that way unless you are infused with divine power. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your system is substandard. And until you come to me for power, you will never be able to live by my standards. This whole sermon really draws a contrast between the best of men and God's standards. <coughs> and even the very best, there were the most legalistic, ritualistic, religious people on the earth. The Pharisees could not qualify. For example, they thought it was enough not to kill. Jesus says, I don't even think you should hate. In fact, it's a command that you not be angry with your brother. They thought it was enough not to commit adultery. And he says you shouldn't even think about committing adultery. They thought it was all right when they got a divorce, if they took care of all the legal paperwork. Jesus said you shouldn't even be getting those unbiblical divorces. They thought it was enough that they kept certain vows. Jesus said, you shouldn't even need to make vows because your word is so true and so pure. They thought it was enough that they gave back, gave back an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He says, you shouldn't be retaliating at all. In chapter 6, they said, here's the way we pray. Jesus says, it's inadequate. When you pray, you are to do it this way. And Jesus said, Here's the way you give, and that's the wrong way you give. I want you to give this way. And Jesus said, you are concerned with material things. I want you to seek the kingdom. You see, all the way through, he's leveling a contrast. And now as we come to chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, he contrasts their love with the kind of love that should characterize the subjects of his kingdom. And what he's doing is telling them, that they are not in his kingdom. They don't qualify. We are called on to be unique. That's the thrust of this whole sermon. That's really what he's saying. And that's what I'd be saying, I've been saying from podcast one, that God is calling us out of the system to be a separated people with convictions 
and commitment and standards that we live by that are not the world standards. Nowhere in the distinction between the life of man and the kingdom of God made more clear or unclear than in the life of a believer. That's where it all comes down. And so Jesus is confronting Israel here because Israel as religious as Israel was, was walking in the flesh. He attacks their humanistic religious tradition by saying it falls woefully short of God's standard. Let's look. Now let's look what he says about this subject of love in verses 43. It's such an important one. You have, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor, their neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them who love you, what reward have you? Do you not do not even the tax collectors do the same? And you greet your brothers only. What do you more than others? What do you more than others? Do not even the heathen so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. End quote. He says to them, as he has said in five previous comparisons, beginning in chapters five, chapter five, verse the twenty-one. Your law says this, mine says this. Your law says love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. I say love your enemy. You are substandard, he's saying. Your ethics are too low. First, as I said, he had exposed the perversion in the divine statute, thou shalt not kill. Then he has attacked also their unwarranted whittling down of the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Then he attacked their des desecration of marriage. Then he had spoken against their wicked tampering, with the injunction not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Then he had shown how they corrupted the judicial law of an eye for an eye. And now he attacks them on the basis of the highest and best of things, love, and says your supposed commitment to love your neighbor is inadequate. And I have to say that I feel this is the supreme statement here because it's a statement on love and love is the greatest thing. And loving your enemies is the greatest thing that love can do. He really comes to the peak, the sunum bonum, the highest good, as he speaks of love. To compare with what we just read, Matthew chapter 22. A lawyer came to Jesus and asked him, what was the great commandment? Or what was the greatest commandment? And in verse 37, Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord your God, thy God, with all thine heart, with all your soul, with all thy mind. This is the first commandment, the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, you can keep all the law and all the prophets one by one, or you can just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself and that 
covered it all. <clears throat> this is the sum of it all. It is also indicated in Romans 13 by Apostle Paul, who says, Owe no man anything, Romans 13, 8, but to love one another. For that, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear falseness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the, is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says love fulfills the whole law. Jesus says love fulfills the whole law. And so in Matthew, when our Lord begins to speak about loving, he is touching on that which sums up the whole law. Now in each of these contrasts, and there are six of them in Matthew 5, we have marked out three major points. The teaching of the Old Testament, the tradition of the Jews, and the truth from Christ. And those are the same three points in all six. Let's look first of all at the tradition of the Jews. And this is referred to in verse 43. You have heard that it had been said. Now that little introductory phrase is a reference we have been we have seen now for the sixth time that refers to Jewish tradition. It's not a statement related to the Old Testament. It means your tradition has been passed down saying this. This is your system. This is what you have developed and you have been taught. The first thing you do is figure out who your neighbor is. And then you can hate everybody else and be okay. That's what they thought. This is the rabbinical current religious teaching. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's what they thought. They taught. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's pretty open-ended. You can just hate up a storm depending on how you define your neighbor. If you define your neighbor as your wife and three best friend, three best friends, you can hate the whole world. So it all depends on the definition of neighbor. And that's exactly what Christ gets into. Not only here, but elsewhere, as we shall see in the coming studies. Look first of all at the first part. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Now that sounds pious. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. It sounds good, you would say. Where did, it, where did they get that? Well, that's in the Old Testament. Sure, Leviticus chapter 19. They got that right out of the Old Testament. Whenever they wanted to make up a rule, they made sure that they intersected somewhere in, with the Old Testament. Like the clock that doesn't run. They are right twice a day. Every once in a while, they, they are going to hit the truth. And they always could find some kind of basis for truth somewhere. And so here they are in Leviticus 19.18, which says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's Leviticus 19.18. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's where they got it. But did you notice something? They left something out. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. What did they leave out? 
as thyself. That's a convenient omission, isn't it? In their state of unbelievable pride, they were so puffed up that they, that kind of a phrase at the end of the sentence would only confuse their desires. And so rather than be trapped in a thing where they would have to treat others equal to themselves, they dropped it. Now granted, the one who came to Jesus in Mark 12 adds as thyself and the lawyer in Luke 10 adds as thyself, but it may have been that they wanted to make sure they were accurate because of who they were speaking with. Apparently the, more, the norm was thou shalt love thy neighbor. They didn't want to love anybody like they loved themselves. They would be crowding them. They were too proud to love anybody equally. But the Lord has a way of driving things into the heart of our being. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You say, how do we love ourselves? How Well, whose teeth did you brush this morning? Whose hair did you comb? Whose wardrobe hangs in your closet? Whose savings account is in your bank? You are concerned about yourself. You love yourself. To love means to serve the needs. You serve your own needs. You have an unfinished, unhypocritical, total love for yourself. You are habitual about it. It's permanent love. I mean, you are really working out, working in your own behalf. It's the way life goes. You're very concerned about your own welfare, your own comfort, your own safety, interest, health, physical, spiritual, temporal, eternal things. We are very concerned about ourselves. We seek our own pleasure and we know of no limits of to gaining what we want. Now that is exactly the way you love everybody else. Jesus said, even your enemies. In other words, you are to have that same totally consuming, unfeigned, fervent, habitual, permanent love, which brings into your heart their interest, their needs, their wants, their desires, their hopes, their ambitions, and prompts you to do everything you can to make sure that all their welfare, safety, comfort, and interest is met. And that whatever they need and whatever they want or whatever pleasure they have, you are anxious to fulfill on their behalf. How do you measure up? The last time you had a choice between doing what you want or sacrificing yourself so somebody else could do it, which way did you go? Who do you really care about? The standard is very high, people. Love your neighbor as yourself is very, very, very high. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. Because humanly speaking, we are totally absorbed in ourselves. Think of it from standpoint of your income. I mean, probably at best you keep 90% of what you finally get after taxes and maybe give the lot 10. When it comes to how much you spend on you as opposed to how much you spend on people on your block, I mean, it's minuscule to even think of how much you might spend on them. But you see, they weren't interested in that. And so they just dropped it. Love your neighbor, they said. And so they omitted something. Because beyond that, they added something. What did they add? Hate your enemy. 
Where did that come from? Did that come out of the Bible? No. Nowhere does the Bible command us to hate our enemies. Where did, it, where did they get that? I mean, what did they do? Just make that up? That's right. It was the logical extension of their perverted thinking. You see, what they did was, they said, we are to love our neighbor. We've got to figure out who our neighbor is. Our neighbors are the Jews, not the Gentiles. That's what the Pharisees believed. Only the Jews qualified. And among the Jews, only certain Jews. Certain Jews didn't qualify as neighbors. For example, Matthew chapter 9 verse 10. And Jesus passed it forth from there. He saw a man named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Verse 10. It came to pass, as Jesus sat eating in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And you have two categories of people here, tax collectors, and we'll see more about them in the future. They were renegade traders, rebels, ex extortionists. And the Pharisees saw it and they said, What? what? Why eat your master with tax collectors and sinners? So they said their neighbors are the Jews, but only the Jews who aren't tax collectors or sinners. So we eliminate all of them. They aren't our neighbors. In fact, they found a woman taken in adultery one time and they picked up stones to stone her. It was a very defined neighbor. So they haven't eliminated the tax collectors. Sorry, so they have eliminated the tax collectors and they have eliminated sinners and they eliminated the rabble mob that weren't committed to the law they were. You know who their neighbors were? The people in their group. That's who. And if you were in their group, you could, you would be loved. But outside their group, you were an enemy. Whether you were the rabble mob or the tax collectors, but outside, of, but outside their group, you were an enemy, whether you were the rabble mob or the tax collector or the public sinner. If you weren't one of them, it was commitment to ourselves and nobody else. They fed their evil proud hearts by concluding that anybody not a neighbor was to be hated. In other words, they said, the Bible says, love your neighbor. Therefore, if someone who is not your neighbor is not to be loved and the opposite of love is hate. So love your neighbor means hate your enemy. That's what's known in legal argument as a non salutor argument. It doesn't necessarily follow, but that's the way they reasoned because they had a perversion in their heart to begin with. Their prejudice found a way. By the way, they didn't read far enough in Leviticus 8.19 either. If they'd read verse 34, they would have read this. The stranger who sojourns in with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. If they'd read the, a little further, they would have known that even a non-Jew, a stranger, whatever he was, was to be loved as they loved themselves. We know of the three groups in Jesus' time, the three sects, the Judaism, the, in Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. 
They all had maxims to hate their enemy. No place in the Old Testament does it ever say to hate your enemy. But there are some things in the Old Testament that at first might be a little hard to understand. So let's move from our first point, the tradition of the Jews, to the teaching of the Old Testament. Where, to the teaching of the Old Testament, where did they ever get these ideas? We'll see some of it today and some of the teaching in the Old Testament in our next study. And finally, we'll see the truth of Christ as it clears up all the misconceptions. But let me just give you the tension that created their sort of open opening for them to do this. They wanted a way to hate. They wanted to justify it in their religious system so it wouldn't encroach on their self-righteousness. So they, they had to invent some way to hate. And no doubt, they found a couple of good excuses. One would be the Old Testament promises to exterminate the Canaanites. You remember God that you remember that when God brought Israel out of the land of promise, the land was filled at that time with Canaanites who were vile, wretched people. In fact, archaeology has shown that there has been there has not been a race of people found that were worse than the Canaanites. They were a despisable thing. They were a cancer on human society of the worst kind. Human sacrifice, bloodletting, massacres of babies, you name it. The Canaanites did it. And when Israel came into the land, they were told regarding the, uh, the Canaanites, they were told to wipe them out. They were not to be treated with kindness. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 through 8. The whole section there says that all of these people, the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, are to be treated with no kindness, but they are to be done away with. So that's where they got it from. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Psalm 69 because I think it would help understand this. In Psalm 69, David here is praying one of those imprecatory psalms. He calls, he's calling judgment down upon um, these evil people. And notice in Psalm 69 verse 22, it's pretty heavy. It's really pretty staring, staring curse that he gives. He says regarding these enemies, let their table become a snare before them, and that even and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy rightful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those who thou hast wounded. Add iniquity into, unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Pretty heavy stuff. That's giving both barrels. God doesn't, and God don't spare anything. <coughs> now, did this become a justification for hatred of the Pharisees? 
very possibly along with the destruction of the Canaanites. They would say, well, see this is the way it is to be done. The enemies we are to hate. <coughs> and they use it as a justification for their own personal hatred and vendettas. But if they did that, and it's likely they did, then they missed the point of both the word to destroy the Canaanites and the Psalms because they have nothing to do with personal relationships. Just like our last study, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, there are certain things that are judicial laws that do not apply in terms of personal relationships. And again, they confuse that. When someone goes to a doctor with cancer and the doctor cuts out the cancer, we don't say the doctor is cruel, do we? We don't say he's unloving, uncaring, unsystematic, unsympathetic, without compassion. We thank him for cutting the cancer out. And when God gets rid of the Canaanite, that was not an act of evil. That was an act of goodness to take out the human, take out of human society a wretched, filthy, vile people that could do nothing but pollute it. And that is a judicial act on God's part. That doesn't give license to an individual Jew to despise an individual Canaanite or to hate him because of something he has done. What God does in his judicial act does not change the fact that the same God who judged the Canaanites loved every one of them with the same love he loves you. Just as I love my child when I punish my child, the punishment comes because of the evil. It does not deny the love. So there is a judicial element. If Israel had followed their customs, Leviticus 18 says, she would have shared their faith and God wanted to preserve a righteous seed. Why? To bring out a righteous Messiah to redeem the world. And so the preservation of Israel was a great concern with, with God's heart so that you would have a witness in the world and he was cutting a cancer out of human society. We have enough sense even today, at least a few places in the world, to set apart individuals in our society who do nothing but bring cancer on our society, who kill and maim and steal. We set them aside and God was doing no more than that in a collective way and setting aside those evil people for the good of society. We love the lost and yet we pray that God would be vindicated and their sin would be stopped, do we not? We love the lost with all our hearts and our hearts ache for those without Christ and yet we pray that Jesus would come and set his kingdom up and put their unrighteous, put their unrighteous people aside. We have the same reaction of dear John the Apostle as he saw the vision in Revelation, 8, in Revelation 10 and he said, when the scroll went into my mouth and I saw that, saw what was going to happen, it was both sweet and bitter. It is sweet to see Christ reigning again. It is bitter to see what happens to the lost. Why? Because he had the tension of loving God with all his heart and loving people too. And that's the way it was with David. It was zeal for God's house that ate him up. My great attitude towards an enemy is to love them and to pray God would save him. And if God doesn't save him, 
that God would judge him, would judge him so that he can bring Christ to be the rightful ruler of this world and set righteousness in the in its proper place again. God punished Adam, but he loved him. God loved Cain, but he punished him. God loved the whole world, but he drowned them. God loved Sodom and Gomorrah, but he burned them to ashes. God loved the nation of Israel, but he set them aside for a time. God loved his only begotten son, but he let him bear sin and die. And God loves the world today, but he promises that it's going to go up in flames someday. God loves you, but you'll spend an eternity in hell if you don't know his son. Well, you see the scribes and the Pharisees never made that distinction in this tension. They took judgment, passages, and because of their evil, perversive and prejudiced hearts, they allowed them to become justification for them to hate people. That was the wrong thing altogether. I think I can sum up my thoughts by having you look at Psalm 139. And this is just the introduction really. Psalm 139 verse 19. It's an interesting scripture. David again is saying, Surely thou will slay the wicked, O God. In other words, he's saying, God, it can always be this way. It can't always be this way. It wasn't meant to be this way. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly. And thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Um, and am I am not I grieved with those who rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now wait a minute, David is hating. Yes, he says, but I'm hating them with what kind of hatred? A perfect hatred. Let me ask you a question. Is it right to be angry? Is it right to be angry? No. Is there such a thing as righteous indignation? Yes. It is right for me to be angry when somebody offends me. Or is it right for me to be angry when somebody offends me? No. Is it right for me to Is it right for me to be righteously indignant when somebody dishonors God? Yes. Would it have been right for Jesus to say, you can't talk to me that way and punch somebody? No. But when Jesus came to defend the holiness and the honor of God with a whip, it was right. There is a difference between anger and holy wrath. And you want to know something? There's a difference between personal hatred and perfect hatred. And that's what David's talking about. Verse 23. Oh, you search me, O God, and you know my heart, and you know my thoughts, and you see if there be any wickedness, wicked way in me. David is saying, check out my heart, Lord, and you'll see that my hatred is a perfect hatred. It isn't personal. It's not a vendetta. As we walk through this world, I'll tell you something. What puts us a cut above everybody? What puts us above everything is the capacity to personally love our enemies. Yes, we pray for God's glory to be vindicated. Yes, we pray for an end to the unrighteous who curse his name. Yes, we allow God to come in fire and flaming vengeance. Yes, we know the same Jesus who said, love your enemies. 
to the Pharisees also said to the to the Pharisees you are woeful Matthew 23 to the Pharisees he pronounced doom yes we know that judicially there will be there will there will become a judgment judicially God will act in punishment and that's for God to do and in defense of God will uphold his holy name but in our personal relationships we are to be characterized by loving our enemies that's what makes us different than everybody in the world people in the world love their friends they do a pretty good job at that they love their families and they've even they are even compassionate and sympathetic to people who don't have much but people in the world don't love their enemies believe me they don't love their enemies people in the world may not kill but they get angry people in the world may not commit adultery not all of them but they do it in their hearts people in the world may do legal things in their divorces but they but they shouldn't have divorces anyway people in the world sometimes keep their word but they don't always keep their word people in the world retaliate some of them on a very equal basis but they don't forgive and forget and people in the world love but they don't love like this and Jesus is saying I don't want you to be like that a pretty high standard to love to love your enemies said John Stott is ardently to desire that they will repent and believe and be saved if you love them enough they just might respond to the Christ who lives in you made visible through that love let's go back to verse 47 what did he say and what do you what do you more than others what makes you different you are not going to be different if you just sprinkle a little Christian activity on your human life you are not going to be different if just a little bit of commitment goes over to Christ what makes you different than anybody else if you belong to my kingdom for one thing is that you love your enemies let us pray To speak this message when the standard is even beyond me or anybody but I speak as your spokesman and I speak to my own heart teach me to love not those that are easy to love not to the lovely and the lovable and the lovable but the unloved and the enemies teach me to love the people who hate me teach me to love the people who curse me teach me to love the people who would silence me who would harm me who would harm my family and those I love most dearly. Oh God, teach me to hate the sin, to hate the unrighteousness that sweeps over the world. May we love people, Father, people who don't love us. And so may they say of us, they must be Christians, for no one else can love like that. May we be known as people that love with a love that is unearthly, supernatural. May we not retaliate. May we not 
may we not give back what is due, but may we give back forgiveness and love. And as your son said, be sons of our Father who is in heaven. May we love like you love, like Jesus loved, even those who hate us most. Amen. <music>